you'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Joshua chapter number 13. Joshua chapter number 13. Uh, we're just going to read one verse this morning as we get started. Most of the scripture that we're going to deal with is kind of scattered throughout, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, territorial division that's given in a lot of this passage. If you would stand as you find your place there. And so this morning, the crux of the message, the thought of the message is coming from verse number one. So we'll read that uh, in Joshua chapter 13 and verse number uh, one. Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. I want to speak to you this morning on the thought, God is not finished yet. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have, uh, Lord, to rise up, to come together, to lift our voices in worship, Lord, to uh, come boldly before your throne, uh, Lord, to ask you this morning with great expectation that you will fulfill your promise to meet with us and to speak to our hearts as we've gathered in the name of our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would be with each one that's here this morning. I pray that all of us would open our heart to you and not resist. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged in the way uh, and that exactly what needs to be accomplished in my life and the lives of those that hear this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would drive home that message into our hearts. May it not be something that we, uh, that we absorb and then quickly forget. Lord, may it be something that we cling to, that we ponder. Uh, that impacts us as we go through the days ahead. And Lord, help us, Lord, to live in a way that honors and pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I read a verse like this, and sometimes, it, though it's, it kind of jumps in and is serious in its nature, uh, I, I almost see a little bit of humor. And I do think that God has a sense of humor. Uh, and you don't have to, I mean, just, just look at some of the creatures that he created, uh, and it kind of lends itself to uh, the idea that he's got a great sense of humor. If you, if you doubt that, then just take a look at Brother Jeremy and you'll see what I mean. Uh, and so uh, we, uh, we look around and we see a lot of things. I say that because he says, Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years. Have you ever met anybody that was old and stricken in years that needed to be reminded? Uh, and so the older that I get, the more stricken in years I become, the less I need the younger crowd coming around and telling me, man, pastor, you're getting old. Uh, and so let alone my wife coming around saying, man, Dave, you're getting old. Uh, and so I don't, I don't need a lot of reminding uh, the aches and the pains and, the, and the, the rattling of the body and the snapping and the popping of joints whenever I stand up uh, tells me that I am old and stricken in years. Uh, and so God looks at Joshua and he says, uh, you're old uh, and there's still a lot to get done. You know, the things really haven't changed that much. There were, we may be getting older, many of us, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, there's still a lot for the, to accomplish for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's still a lot uh, that God wants to see done. And, uh, and it's uh, sometimes the, where we are culturally makes it a little bit more difficult. We have to be a little bit more careful about how things are packaged so that, uh, so that it's received and the message has an opportunity to take root and, uh, and to grow. And, uh, and we, we kind of take those things into account. But uh, the, the fact is, is that Joshua here 
is into his 80s by all likelihood, by all accounts, and uh, he is getting up in years, and he's and the time is winding down, and God is bringing things here uh, to to where they're kind of fizzling out in this obtaining the land. Uh, when we consider, and, and one of the reasons we're going to look at verse 12 and beyond here in just a little bit, but uh, you know, he tells him in verse two, "This is the land." that yet remaineth all the borders of the Philistines and Geshuri from Sihor, which is before Egypt, even to the borders of Ekron northward. And so he lays out here all of the land that still needs to be possessed. And so we kind of look through Joshua and we read the accounts and the stories of now they came into the, they've come into the promised land and they've taken Jericho and they uh, fail at first, but then ultimately take Ai and then move through. And we see all of the different areas that they've taken. Uh, and, and we look at that and we think, man, that's awesome. That's great. God's delivering his promise. They're, they've responded in faith and they've gone out and they fought the battles. And, but now they're winding down. Uh, and the problem is, is that there's still a lot to be taken. And they're going to pay a price and are still paying a price, quite honestly, for the unfinished work, what they left undone. And I, I see great correlation, um, and without trying to read too much into this, I see a lot of correlation between the nation of Israel, particularly uh, as they've come uh, through Genesis and into Egypt and now out of Egypt and through the wilderness wandering and now into the promised land uh, to, the, to the daily Christian life. There are a lot of principles that they demonstrate for us as a nation that are applicable to us today in our Christian life. Uh, and so when we got saved, for example, we came out of Egypt. Uh, when, we, uh, when we fail to... Uh, to obey the Lord in faith, and we have to wander the wilderness. Now, you can make a lot of correlation to uh, in, in a different application to the wilderness wandering, whether it's just the sojourning of this life and the promised land being heaven. Uh, and I think that there's some merit to that, but I, I really don't believe that I have to wait to come into the presence of God in heaven before I can enjoy the benefits and the blessing of God that he gives them in the promised land. I don't believe that we have to wait to experience a land that flows with milk and honey until we leave this life and enter into the next. I believe God wants us to experience an abundant life. Jesus told us that. I came to give you life uh, and that you, that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He wants us to have an abundant life. That doesn't mean that he wants us all to be wealthy. That doesn't mean that he wants us all to drive uh, cars that we don't fit into anymore. Uh, that doesn't mean that he wants us to, uh, to you know, necessarily uh, have everything that's, that's the, the best or the most expensive. What it means is that he wants to be a part of our everyday life and he wants us to live in his power and in his blessing to fulfill the will that he's given us. Now, Israel's failed here. And there's still much to be done. And I, I want to point out some things this morning that I think to correlate from them to us in our day-to-day -day life. And everyone here this morning that knows the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, can take some of these truths, these principles, uh, though some are just observation, that you can look at them and you can make sense. They'll resonate with what the Israelites experienced in their journey and in their battle to obtain what God had promised them. Fact is, is that God has promised you a lot of things. 
And the promises of God, I mean, the salvation, praise the Lord, is not conditional. I mean, provided I put my faith in Him, uh, then I'm saved by grace. It's not my own merit that saves me or keeps me. But aside from that, most of God's promises are conditional. I can't just uh, I can't just say, okay, God, I'm your child. You owe me. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't owe me anything. Because of His grace, He has given me salvation. Because of His grace, He's given me eternal life. Because of His mercy, uh, He has come and looked upon us as guilty and not pronounced us innocent, but paid our penalty for us so that we could stand innocent and righteous before the throne of God. Uh, and so as we consider this this morning, here's uh, the nation of Israel, and they, uh, they come out of Egypt, and God's plan is not for them to, uh, to wander for 40 years. That was not God's initial intent when they came out of Egypt. His intent was to take them uh, across the, uh, the, the desert and, and straight away, uh, and he did divert them a little bit away from the land of the Philistines because uh, the Bible tells us clearly that, that God knew that if they had to face a foe as mighty as the Philistines that early, they would have been overwhelmed and discouraged by that. And so he took them around uh, a different path, but it still was a fairly quick route, just a couple of weeks in, or, or so in the journey uh, to where they come. And then Moses sends out the spies, among which Joshua is uh, one, and Caleb that will look at in a moment uh, is the other, uh, that those two come back and said, yes, this is a land that is all that God has promised that it would be, but the ten could only see the giants and the obstacles while, jo while, while uh, Joshua and Caleb saw the promise of God. Uh, and we all face that in our life. We all come to a point early in the Christian life when we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, where we are going to make a decision as to whether or not I am going to let God grow me, lead me, develop me, whether I'm going to engage in the struggle of growth and development, or whether I am going to uh, just cling to what I was. Israel's problem is that all throughout their history, they're clinging to what they came from. They're looking back. Uh, they're, they're wrapped up in the religion of Egypt. They're wrapped up in the comfort zone of Egypt. And, uh, and if we look at that and think, man, they were slaves. How could they be comfortable in slavery, yet we trust Christ as our Savior and run right back to the sin that enslaves us and embrace it because it's our comfort zone. It's, it's different in practical application. We cannot see our taskmaster standing over us and treating us cruelly, but live long enough and you will begin to see the effects of the work of that taskmaster upon this old body. Uh, and if you look at sometimes you, I get places and I'll see somebody and think, uh, you know, I'll meet someone for the first time and I'll think, man, this person uh, is probably in their, uh, in, their, in their 60s or late 60s and come to find out they're in their 40s. They just lived hard. They just abused their body. And they aged prematurely. And they lived it up and they lived in the fast lane when they were young and now they're paying a the price. Uh, and so then I've met other people that I looked and I thought, well, uh, you know, this person's probably, uh, this, prob this person's probably about, uh, about 40, 45, and come to find out they're pushing 60. They stayed clean. 
They didn't do everything right. They didn't live without sin, but they didn't abuse uh, the, the gift of the body that God had given them. And I understand that there are uh, things like disease that come unexpectedly that, that can, can impact uh, our appearance and, and how our body adapts and things of that nature. But by and large, we bear in our body the marks of the things that we choose. And we have to understand that uh, sometimes we become less effective prematurely because we did not live wisely and serve God wisely in our young years or when we first found Christ. And so here's Israel. They come out of Egypt and they go across and they listen to the doubters instead of those that would have faith and they are banished to and sentenced essentially. They get a death sentence from God uh, except for Joshua and Caleb. No one else is going to enter the promised land. The rest of you are going to wander around in the wilderness for the next 40 years and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to lead you and I'm going uh, to feed you and when you have to fight some battles, I'm going to give you victory and <clears throat> as long as you follow along and do what you're uh, told to do and you follow my instruction and I'm, I'm going to meet all of your needs and in the midst of all of that, your, your clothes aren't even going to wear out. I'm going to take care of everything that you need. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to set up a system of worship so you can learn to, uh, about what uh, atonement's about and the price that's going to be paid for you. He does all of this in this time and now they come to this next defining moment in their life. Isn't it amazing that God uses them and lays out defining moments, and just like our lives have defining moments. Moments in which we make a decision and a moment that's going to affect perhaps the rest of our life. Now, there are a lot of things that we make decisions about on a daily basis that really are that not that important. They're not going to uh, impact much other than about how much our friends make fun of us and ridicule us or, uh, or not. You know, things like uh, maybe what we wear, what we say, where we go, how we... Uh, how we act in a particular instance, but then there are other decisions that we make that are transformative, that are life-changing. Sometimes those decisions have to be made in an instant. Uh, sometimes life and death circumstances come up and, uh, and have to, uh, a decision has to be made in a split second uh, that is going to whether, determine whether someone lives or dies. Sometimes that can be medically related, like we had here a couple of weeks ago with Brother Paul in the middle of a service. Uh, sometimes it could be maybe on the highway. Sometimes it can be on a battlefield. Uh, but there are a lot of things that come in life that, hey, this thing that I decide right here, right now, and I would dare say this morning that many times those moments, those crossroads, those critical times in life often happen at a time of invitation in a service just like this one. And how we respond can very well determine the direction in the course of our life. And so here's Israel. Hopefully they've learned their lesson. They've learned their lesson at least enough that they're ready to cross the river. And so God tells them what to do and God tells them how to go about it. And this time there's not any hesitation. This time uh, God says take the ark and jump out there in the river. And so they take the ark, and then once they make their step into the water, it's not like before at the Red Sea. At the Red Sea, Moses held the rod out, and the water began to part. This time, nothing was moving. No water was stopping. No division was happening. No ground was drying up until they made the first move and took a step into it. Uh, and so once that took place, then they stayed there in the riverbed with the ark as all of Israel crossed through. And then when they removed the ark, the power of God or the symbol of that to them, came across and they made their pillar and God gave them uh, a ridiculous instructions to capture Jericho. I mean, you just stop and think about that for a minute. Think about how, how 
foolish it would sound to uh, a real military tactician, the instructions that God gave them uh, to bring down the city walls of this impregnable force of Jericho. But yet they obeyed. They did exactly what God said, and God gave the victory. Then they begin to forget. They go to the next battle, and God tells them what to do, and, uh, and somebody got greedy, and so they lose. 36 men lose their lives. Ultimately, one family is destroyed to set an example of punishment to obey God. They go through. They begin to conquer. The Gibeonites come, and they buy their story about being from far away. They follow the deception. And the lesson to learn here is simply that whenever we are presented sometimes with someone unexpected or someone presents himself in a certain way, before we make important decisions about relationships and about how we're going to interact, we need to go to God and spend some time in prayer. They got in trouble with them because they did not seek God's face. God uh, was very capable of telling Joshua, Joshua, they are from here. They are, not, they are not what they tell you they are. Their bread is not really moldy because they've been on a long journey. It's because they let it set out of mold so they could deceive you. And they had to bear the burden of that. And so they bear that burden. And so now they've gone through for a period of time and they have uh, fought the battles and they have begun to possess the land that God has promised them. But like us, they begin to get weary in well-doing. Like us, they begin to look and feel as if, well, you know, God has richly blessed me. God has kept a lot of his word to me. God has given us great benefit and blessing here. Uh, and I think I'm satisfied with what I have. Now, it's a good thing to be content with God, what God gives us, but it's not a good thing to be content with what we've accomplished for him when he has told us to accomplish more. And God has told them to take the entire land of promise, to drive out and to destroy every enemy. They have not done that. The Philistines are still there. Many others are still there. And finally, it gets to a point where God says, okay, but the ones that you've left are going to be a problem for you for, from here on out. Now, let's just kind of make application of this um, before we get into the body and the message this morning so that it kind of sets the table for that. How does that apply to you and I today in the Christian life? I would say this. I th I, to me, what I see and what I experience whenever I've looked through this is this, is this thought. You can disagree with me if you want to. Uh, this is just at my view. When I look at this, I see God saving us, bringing us through life, to a time where he can bless us. He's given us a job to do. And all of these people that they're driving out, in my mind, represent sin in my life. And you meet some people that they get saved, and it's like immediately, at the moment that they got saved, they never had another desire for a cigarette or for a drink. And, I, and I'm not trying to say that it's that way for everybody. I, but I know a lot of folks that it's been that way. And others that didn't let it go right away. And they're still struggling with it now. Decades later. I, I believe this. I believe that there are some sins in our life. That when we first come to Christ and get developed and get saved and begin to be discipled and begin to grow. That God gives us an opportunity 
while everything is fresh and we've got zeal and excitement for Christ to eradicate that from our life so that we're focused and in step with Him. But if I hang on to, and I found this to be true, the sins that we hang on to are the sins that, that, that so easily beset us through life. Now, Israel has been given a task. They have accomplished much of it, but they have been satisfied with what they've accomplished and they did not complete the job and they pay a price and are still paying a price today. My question this morning is, how great of a price am I paying in my own life because I did not finish the job that God gave me? Because I did not allow God to do in my life what he wanted done. Now, some thoughts here that that I believe if I am going to experience what God has for me. Because I, I, I really believe in my heart that as long as there's a breath in this body, God has something for me to do. And if it's on my dying day, there is someone that God can bring into the room in which I'm dying that I can impact. Maybe by testimony, maybe by someone in my family's recounting some event in my life or some way that God worked, but their life can be touched. God has a plan and a purpose for us until He calls us home. He's not finished yet. And I can experience going forward with God in victory in my life, not in defeat. And so how do I accomplish that? How do I experience what God has? How do I have victory in my life? And I believe that through this chapter and in chapter 14, he gives us some insight here. Uh, And I would say this, beginning in verse 12 and 13, it says, All the kingdom of Og and Bashan, which reigned in Ashtaroth and in Indri, who remained of the remnant of the giants. Uh, And so he's still laying out here those that are left. But notice this last statement here. For these did Moses smite and cast them out. Nevertheless, the children of Israel expelled not the Geshurites. And he lists some others, and they're there among the Israelites until this day. So the point is this, point number one this morning. If I am going to experience all that God has for me, if I'm going to live in victory in the Christian life, going forward with God, I must believe the promise. I must believe the promise. He's referencing Moses here. They're not Moses didn't come into the promised land. These are battles. This is a battle. This, this being expelled here of Moses was prior to uh, Joshua taking command. But Moses believed God. They did not go into the promised land immediately because they believed their eyes more than they believed God. They believed what they saw. They believed the giants were undefeatable. They believed, <coughs> excuse me, that they, that they could not, though the land was everything that God promised, that the obstacles were too great. And how many times have we sat back, have we given up, have we just said this is too hard and not proceeded or progressed in the Christian life because we came to a place where we just said, hey, I've got my eyes on the problem rather than on the God who promised victory. I've got to believe the promise. And the reality this morning is is that no one here will ever experience God in his full fashion, the way that he wants us to, until we believe him, until we trust him. 
I will not step out by faith in anything if I do not believe that God will fulfill his word. Oh, pastor, but I believe it. Do we say that we believe it or do we believe it? It's one thing to say, I believe. It's another thing to step out into the river. And when my belief comes to the place where my trust in God is great enough that I am willing to take a step of faith, trusting that God will do what he said, but really not knowing until I experience it. Then I've come to a place where I'm believing the promise. What has God promised us? Now, lest we get really lengthy into the afternoon today, I'm going to throw some thoughts out here that are really basic Bible principles and concepts, just as a way of reminder. Uh, and so uh, you can jot these things down. Uh, and so I must believe the promise. What has he promised us? Well, let's start with the promise of life. God has promised us eternal life. Jesus Christ has promised, God the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit has drawn us to the Father that if I will put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ that I am born again, that I have eternal life, that I am not relying upon self, I'm not dependent upon me, I am fully trusting in what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross because no matter how good I am, it'll never be good enough. And it doesn't matter the best person that we know, the best person that could be found in recorded history could not be good enough to walk into the presence of God righteous. And so consider this morning that God has promised us life. What else has He promised? Well, He promised us empowerment. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. God promised us his power for life. They, they're not fighting these people on their own. They're not fighting these battles. They're not driving these people out of the promised land by their own strength and ability and their own power. I mean, they brought down the walls of Jericho because they did what God said, and they fled before the feeble little army of Ai because they trusted in their way. And the reality is, is that when I humble myself and I surrender myself to do things God's way, then I put myself in a position where I can receive God's empowerment. God give, uh, has given us the Holy Spirit to, to keep us, to be, the, to be the earnest of our salvation, to lead us, to guide us, to instruct us, and, and, to, uh, and to empower us to do things that he's given us to do. Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. It is the power of God that does through us, not us standing in our own might. What is it that we achieve or we obtain when we believe the promise of God? Well, first we receive eternal life. Then we believe we, we get the power of, or the promise of empowerment. Uh, he tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors. The promise of victory. Listen, we do not have to live a defeated life. If anybody that knows Jesus Christ as their Savior lives a defeated life, they live that life because it's the life they choose, not because it's the life that God promised them. We have to choose Christ. We have to choose His guidance. We have to choose His leadership. We have to choose His path this morning. I must believe the promise. 
He promised me life. Praise the Lord. We believe that. We've accepted that. We're here this morning by and large because we have put our faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of our souls that we might be in the presence of God when we leave this life. Uh, Why won't we entrust Him for empowerment? Why do we try to live every day in our own power, in our own strength, to our own logic, and according to our own ability? Why can we not rise above the frailty of our humanity and embrace and experience the reality of a God who loves us so much that He not only provided a way for me to have eternal life, but He provided a way for me to have the strength and the power of Him living through me that I might succeed for His glory. The promise of victory. Secondly, this morning, consider uh, that if I would uh, receive what God would have for me, I must banish the perverse. First, I must believe the promise. Second, I must banish the perverse. Notice verse 21. And all the cities of the plain and all the kingdoms of Sion, king of the Amorites, which reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses smote with the princes of Midian, uh, Evi uh, and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, which were dukes of Sihon dwelling in in the country. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, did the children of Israel slay with the sword among them that were slain by them. It's the principle here. The principle is I must banish the perverse. They destroyed the enemy. I can't coddle my sin. I can't coddle the things in my life that that distract me from doing what God would have me to do. I I can't uh, hang on to the Balaams of my life and to the Midianites of my life and to the Gibeonites of my life and to the Philistines of my life. I cannot embrace them and refuse to destroy them and to eradicate them, because if I do, it will destroy me. Uh, Notice what what Psalm 106, in Psalm, the 106th Psalm, I'm going to look at just a couple of verses there, and beginning in verse number 19, Psalm 106 and verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molten image, thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forget God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen stood before him and the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land. They believed not his word, but murmured in their tents, and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. That's Israel's way. That's the way of many a Christian. Rather than embracing what God has for us, we huddle up in corners and we complain about what we don't have or about what we wish we had or about what God is doing or what God is not doing according to our liking. We want to go back to where we came from because it's comfortable. We want to give up because the Christian life is a struggle. We want to embrace the home that we know rather than living for the home that we hope to receive. We come and we look and what I would say this morning that we see in this in these verses is that those that were here, those that were in their way, those that possessed the land, they obeyed in this sense and with these people that are listed and that they destroyed them, they eradicated them, they ceased to exist in their life. What did they destroy? Well, at first I would say that they banished that which perverts focus. 
What should I get rid of, Pastor? Banish that which perverts my focus. My focus should be on the Lord Jesus Christ. My focus should be on the will of God for my life. My focus should be on fulfilling the great commission of Christ. My focus should be wrapped up in my God, not in myself. And that which would steal or pervert my focus needs to go. If I've got things in my life that I cannot control that rob me of my focus of what God has for me or what I'm supposed to be becoming for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is perverting my focus and it must be eradicated from my life. Just to put it on a real practical level, it's different for everyone. Every one of us have things in our life. And make it real practical this morning, uh, there are things that would fall into this category if we would be honest with self and let the Holy Spirit of God lead us that would become sin for one Christian but not sin for another. Why? Because there are some things in life that God has not said this is wrong or this is, uh, it's not a right or wrong issue. It's a, is this helping me serve God or is this hindering me from serving God issue? I'm going to go home tonight. I'm going to, my wife is going to throw some stuff in the oven. Uh, and some of the family is going to come over and we're going to uh, set, uh, turn on the Super Bowl. Watch the Super Bowl for a little bit. But there are a lot of people that are going to stay home from church tonight to watch the Super Bowl live. There are a lot of people that their whole life is wrapped up in that. Their whole focus is about that. There are a lot of people that have sacrificed money that they don't have just to go to the game. Is it wrong to go to a game? No. Is it wrong to be a fan of a sport? No, I don't, I don't believe it is. We have several sports teams that we're fans of, that we follow, that we watch. But we don't put them ahead of God. And so, if my love for something that is not good or bad, it's just there, is hindering me from my focus on God and what God has for me then for me, that's a sin. And if someone else can deal with that and keep it in balance and keep their focus on the Lord, then it's not sinful for them. Now, that's a little bit, it's not really that deep in my mind, but for a lot of folks, just think, man, that's really kind of on the, beyond the edge of the way that we think and process things. But that which would pervert my focus is hindering me. What was the problem with the Gibeonites? It kept their focus off of what they were supposed to do. What was the, what was the problem of, uh, of being uh, entertaining all of these other kingdoms and wanting to make trade, trade alliances rather than going to war and looking at what can benefit could we have by being friends with them if we don't destroy them? Uh, but God said destroy. What benefit could this sin in my life if it's controlled bring? But the sin can never be controlled in our lives. It always will gain in power if we allow it to stay. That which perverts my focus uh, needs to be labeled as perverse and it needs to be eradicated from my life. Secondly, I would say that that which perverts my fellowship. God did not want them fellowshipping with the kingdoms and the countries around them. He wanted them fellowshipping with him. Their fellowship was not to be uh, with all those around them. Their fellowship was to be with the one that gave them the land of promise. And my fellowship this morning, listen, uh, I, I'm <clears throat> we ought to be able to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Quite honestly, our relationships outside of our brothers and sisters in Christ should be for the purpose of bringing them to Christ, and that's it. 
You know, if I've got to have a work relationship with someone, then I'm going to be, going to be kind, but I'm, I'm trying to win them to Christ by my testimony, by my words, all of those types of things. Uh, I, I, I find nothing in the Bible that, that gives me uh, uh, any endorsement to go out and spend a lot of time with people that are corrupt and that are perverse and that hate God. Why? It's dangerous because if I stand in the way of sinners and if I sit in the seat of the scornful, then I am going to become a sinner. I am going to become scornful. I will become like those whom I keep company with. Who I spend time with is of utmost critical importance to my life because as strong as someone may be today, over time they will wear down, they'll let their guard down, they'll find themselves uh, in, a, uh, in a compromising position where they have to choose between their loyalty to their God or to the friends that they keep. And listen, what I'm saying is, is that if I've got something in my life that is perverting my fellowship with my God and with my brothers and sisters in Christ, then I should banish it. So, Pastor, where's the list at of things that we need to banish? It's different for every one of you. That's not for me to say. That's for the Christian to walk with God and to let the Holy Spirit lead and guide. I'm not here to micromanage your life. I'm here to just present the truth of the Word of God and to allow the Holy Spirit to lead those that sincerely want to follow Him. But I would say this morning that if you've got someone in your life that is perverting your fellowship with God, they should be banned then I would say that it, if it banishes, I need to banish that which perverts my fellowship. If my fellowship with God is corrupt and my fellowship with the world is growing, then you can rest assured that not long after, my fellowship will be, ban- ban- will be perverted. I want to follow the Lord. And if I'm going to follow the Lord, I need to be in lockstep with those that are following the Lord. I'm not talking about walking through the wilderness, a mindless mob that, doesn't, that can't think and that can't uh, see and that, can't, that has to have everything in their life micromanaged. Listen, God gave us a, a form of intelligence, uh, granted, some more than others, uh, and a lot of people here have a lot more than I do. Uh, and so, but I'm saying God gave us a brain. We should use it sometimes. God did not put us in the church so that the church could be a mindless mob that just got in lockstep with whoever was the head of the organism at the moment uh, to just go through life without thinking, without reading the Bible, without knowing what the Bible teaches, without being faithful and true to the true head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us the church to encourage us. Listen, my relationships, my friendship should inspire and help facilitate my fellowship of the Savior, and if it is hurting that, then it needs to go. To possess the land, I must believe the promise. To possess the land, I must banish the perverse. And then lastly, this morning, to possess the land, I must be a partaker. I must be a partaker. Look at chapter 14 and verses 7 through 9, and we really could read a lot further than that, and it's familiar, but we, for sake of time tonight, we're just going to read these few, and I believe most of us will be familiar with this that we'll understand. Uh, Joshua chapter 14 and verse 7, 40 years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. Isn't it interesting that he didn't say that I wholly followed Moses? I wholly followed the Lord my God, and Moses swear on that day, saying, Surely 
The land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. There's the reason why he receives what God has for him. Verse 12, now therefore give me this mountain. Caleb, in his 80s, while the rest of his nation is weary and well-doing, says, Joshua, I want my mountain. Joshua, I want what God's promised for me. I want to win the victory. I want everything that God has promised me. And would God help us to be a people that have a desire to grow in such a way that we can obtain everything that God has designed for our life. That we be a church that can obtain everything that God has designed for the church. Three thoughts that help kind of demonstrate being a partaker that I think are exemplified in the life of Caleb. Number one, partake of his sacrifice. Partake of his sacrifice. Caleb sacrificed by standing up to the ten. He sacrificed by staying in the battle into his 80s. Jesus sacrificed to bring us salvation. If I will be a disciple of Christ, I must take up my cross and follow him. And when I come to understand that if I would be a partaker of that which God has promised, I must also partake of his sacrifice. The life, the Christian life, uh, is a life of sacrifice. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I cannot have and I cannot be everything that God desires until I'm willing to put my life on an altar and say, Jesus Christ, as you've laid yourself on Calvary's cross and sacrificed for my sin, so I lay my life on this altar to live for you a sacrifice, to bring you honor, to bring you glory, to fulfill the purpose for which you've created me, to walk in fellowship with you, to demonstrate your power and grace, mercy and love to the world around us. I will embrace the sacrifice of the Christian life. I believe that Caleb at times in his life partook of a sackcloth. What I mean by that is I believe that sin grieved him. And we are quickly moving past the time and the day when Christians are grieved by the sins of their countrymen. Where Christians are grieved even by the sins of other Christians within the church, even as they see that sin sucking the life and the power of God away from it. I pulled the mail out of my box this morning just for a few minutes whenever I sat at the desk right before I reviewed the message this morning and kind of sorted through some mail that's come in this week. And there's a postcard in there. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a return address. It's a handwritten little note on this postcard. Someone said, pray for my church, gave the name of the church. It's dying. I drove by there recently before a service started. I think there were about six or seven cars there. And we will come together, worship, and wonder why God's power has left and wonder why things are dying out. Praise the Lord, things aren't dying out around here. I'm excited about what God's doing. 
But do we even stop and wonder why? Oh, man, pastor, pray for my church. It's dying. Why is it dying? Have you been grieved about the sin that caused the Spirit of God to leave? If I would be a partaker, I must, with Christ, learn to have a broken heart over sin. Learn to be grieved by the sin that grieves the Spirit of God. We have been so conditioned to just accept what anybody else wants to do. It doesn't affect me and what I'm doing, so it doesn't matter. Well, it matters. It matters. I'd be curious to get to heaven one day and find out how much abortion has attributed to the decline of the morals of America. How many preachers never stood in the pulpit to preach the Word of God because they were never allowed to take air into their lungs and live. By the way, some of the greatest preachers in history didn't come from idealistic, perfect Christian homes. Many of them came from horrid situations that the liberals would do, use to justify the murder of the unborn. And make no mistake about it, abortion at any stage, let alone the nonsense that's going on this week in New York, uh, at any stage is cold-blooded, premeditated murder. There's no other way to look at it, realistically. What I'm saying this morning is that I need to come to a place where I have the capacity to grieve over the sin in my own life, to grieve over the sin in those that I worship with, to grieve over the sin of my nation. Go back and study the scripture and find out how many times the great prophets prayed for the nation. Though they were not partakers of that specific sin, they prayed to God for forgiveness as if they were. Because their nation was guilty and they were a part of their nation. I must be a partaker of his sacrifice. I must be a partaker of his sackcloth. I must be a partaker of his substance. I'm so glad this morning that the Christian life is not shallow and empty and void. It is a life of substance. It is a life of meaning. How many people take their life, how many people turn to drugs and alcohol because they feel as if they have no meaning to their life, they have no value in their life, they have no reason to go on, they have no purpose to exist. My friends, if you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior this morning, you have a purpose to exist. You have a reason to live. You have a job to do. You have a life that is filled with substance. And if you will embrace the God that has given you life, if I will embrace the promise that God has given me in faith and I will partake of that which God has given me to do, then I can live a life that is filled with substance. And what I will find is that I will live a life in great victory. I will live a life that pleases God. I will live a life that's empowered by God. And I'll live a life that one day when I go to heaven, someone can stand over my casket and say, his life touched mine. Whose life has your life touched this morning? If your answer is no one's, let me rephrase that. Whose life has my life is my life touching for the cause of Christ this morning? If the answer is no one, I have good news for you. It's a brand new day. And if you've never used your life and your walk with God to positively impact someone for the cause of Christ, you can put all of those days behind you and you can embrace today and tomorrow 
and start a brand new way of life in the power and in the glory of God, embracing a life of substance, living a life of victory, going forward with God, because the truth is we're all here this morning. Victory Baptist Church is still located at 1800 East Archer Road in Baytown, Texas, and as long as we're here, And as long as we're drawing breath into our lungs, as long as we're lifting up our voice in in worship, as long as we're sharing the message of the gospel from the pulpit, God is not finished yet. 